So I'd like to do a sound check, volume check uh, here, make sure that the, it's good. I think I'm seeing thumbs up. Usually I would give a talk like the one I've chosen to, uh, to offer this evening. Uh, this kind of talk I would usually give um, later on in the retreat. Maybe especially thinking of those of you who've just, just come. But I was inspired for some reason to offer it uh, this morning. It came to me, so um, we'll see how it goes. But with all these talks, everything that we offer here, it's an offering. Um, My advice is to let it in and let it wash through. And if there's something useful, it'll, it'll land there somewhere at some point. So I think that we would all agree in thinking about why we would come and spend time on a retreat like this you know, and dedicate it this much time and, and the effort and energy that we bring, we'd, we'd all agree that there's some kind of uh, something we would call a searching or seeking that's an aspect of, of that motivation. Annie spoke about this last night in, in talking about, you know, what, just what it is we're doing here and this, this um, desire for uh, happiness or peace might use different words, but this, this movement of the heart, this movement of the mind that we might think of as, as a, kind of an energetic support for our practice, sustains it, supports and sustains it, gives us that, that, uh, um, that motivating energy to actually engage with the practice, carries us through the ups and downs of that. And, and it's, it's, it's a kind of wholesome desire, call it often dhamma chanda, desire for dhamma, for liberation. This deep desire that we might, as I said, name in different ways, happiness, peace, ease, non-struggle, all the different ways that, that we might be able to connect with this sense of this motivating energy. there's a metaphor that's often used for uh, what we might call the spiritual life as a journey, this image of, of it being a journey. This is true in Buddhism. It's true in many great traditions. There's this sense of holding, uh, uh, holding the practice as a journey, as a movement. Sometimes it's described as a journey home, a journey to our true home, this image. And the Buddha's realize, realization has sometimes been likened to, to reaching one's real home, true home, safe home. And if we think about what it might be like to reach a true home, a real home, there are connotations, at least for me, of, of this being a place of ease and rest, relaxation, where the body, the mind, the heart can all relax truly and fully. You know, and we, we would think of being able to walk in the door of a, of a good home, a true home, and just there's a sigh of relief and an ease that would come to us in that. And so if we use this kind of metaphor of the spiritual life as this journey, journey to our home, and we can then see ourselves as, as traveling on this path 
And this word path, walking the path, this is used a lot. Buddha spoke in this way. Others speak about this path, this path to ease, relaxation, to the deepest possible ease, to freedom. Now it's important, I think this kind of image can be useful for us. We can actually uh, see see it in this way and, and it applies directly perhaps to our experience and the way we see our practice unfolding. But at the same time, I think it's important not to hold it too literally because it's not that we're going somewhere other than where we are right now. And it's not that we're getting something that we don't have. We have to be careful in how we use these kinds of images. We end up where we started, but our understanding, that's what changes. There's the change in terms of that. That's what happens. This is, these are some words from T.S. Eliot from a poem called Little Gidding, just a short excerpt, a few lines. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. We're not going somewhere. We're not getting something that we don't have. But there's a new understanding So nothing changes, and yet everything is, in a certain sense, we could say radically transformed. Transformed by the power of insight, by liberating wisdom, and this deep seeing into what we might call the truth of the way things really are. This is where the change comes, not in getting somewhere new. I think many of us, if we have any relationship to um, this, the idea of, the, of realizing Nibbana, any relationship to this realization of Nibbana, often see it as something that is quite far away from us, something high, remote, perhaps beyond or outside the realm of what we even think of as a possibility maybe beyond anything we might hope to ever really realize. And we may have the sense of of some vague, kind of undefined, maybe kind of unknowable goal that we're supposed to be able to get to if we work hard enough. You know, like some kind of reward that we might obtain if we practice hard enough, spend enough time on retreats like this, enough time in meditation. And this way of, of, of holding this idea maybe is, is compounded by limitations of language and the attempts to define, to speak about, to point to with language words, something which on an essential level is probably impossible to define. And often the best we can possibly do is, is point at it either by saying what it isn't or alluding to it in some, uh, to certain qualities or characteristics in, in often vague or, or even very poetic kinds of ways. And we can get a sense for this very easily if we think about what it's like, how difficult it is to describe to someone who has never spent any time in meditation 
watching their mind and body in the way we do, trying to describe what, our, what they, that experience is like. We can say a few things about it, but the subtlety and nuance of our, of our inner experience in meditation is, is impossible to communicate, isn't it? Especially to someone who's never sat and, and spent time mindfully watching the mind-body process. It's hard enough to talk about to someone who's, who, who has meditated, let alone someone who hasn't. You know, or if we, if we were to try to describe the experience of eating, uh, say, a particular uh, piece of fruit or something, say a mango, you know, we might go on and on. You know, someone who'd never tasted one, never seen one perhaps, and, and we can go on and on about the color and the texture and the smell and the taste and how juicy and delicious we find them to be if, if that's the case. And, and, you know, we could talk about it all day, but until someone actually tries one, they'll have no idea, no idea at all what it's really like. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, and is endless. So also Nibbana is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, nor come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. There is an island, an island which you cannot go beyond. It is a place of no thingness, a place of non-possession and of non-attachment. It is the total end of death and decay. And this is why I call it Nibbana. These are, are the words of the Buddha in different places in the teachings. And it sounds so beautiful, maybe. An island which you cannot go beyond. A place of non-attachment, non-possession, which does not age, neither coming into existence nor passing out of existence. And, and there may be an evoking of some sense of some, something there. It may strike us as beautiful. This beautiful island. And so then if we think of it at all, and we hear words like this, we may hold this idea in some, some vague way, something somewhere out there. We certainly don't have it now. That's clear to us. But someday we might be able to, to get it or get to it, even though we're not in any way sure what it might actually be. Like some place or state might get to eventually some sort of beautiful island. And perhaps these kinds of images can inspire us. They seem beautiful, as I said. They may energize our practice. They may just lead us into feeling confused. There might be all kinds of ways that this lands in the mind and the heart. But also sometimes it can lead us to looking in, in perhaps in the wrong place or in the wrong direction, we might say. And if we're looking in the wrong place, 
looking in the wrong direction, we're not likely to find what we're seeking. And this is, I think, important for us to keep in mind because we have very strong conditioning to look outside ourselves for both the source of our struggles and the solution to them. This is very strongly conditioned in us. And so leading us then to see freedom awakening, Nibbana, if we want to use this word, as some, some far off attainment in some future state of grace. And we set off looking, looking outside, looking for the beautiful island, we could say, outside of, beyond our momentary experience. That doesn't seem often anything like a beautiful island. Once in a while, if we're lucky, maybe, something like that. Recently, someone gave me a book. It's a biography of uh, a monk in the Thai forest tradition who was born an Englishman. His name uh, was Ajahn Panyawado. And I think he may have been the first uh, Western monk to train in, the, in Thailand in the Thai forest tradition. He, he was there uh, before Ajahn Sumedho, who's a very, uh, more, much more well-known figure because of coming to the West. Ajahn Panyavado stayed uh, and lived uh, and uh, ended his life in Thailand, as far as I'm aware of. He was a disciple of a very famous teacher named Ajahn Mahabua. He was widely held um, and seen as being a fully enlightened being who died just a few years ago, uh, having reached quite close to 100 years of, of age, Ajahn Mahabua. And I, I was fortunate, I was uh, spending some time practicing in Thailand, and I think this is, goes back about 12 years ago, something like that. And I met both of them uh, where I was staying. They, they both, Ajahn Mahabua came a couple of times Ajahn Panyavado spent uh, a week or so uh, at, the, at the center where I was staying then. And um, I, when I read the book, I realized he ordained the year I was born, 1955. And we, we got to go and sit and, and uh, sit with him and meditate with him and ask him questions uh, pretty much every day for the, the week that he was there. It was uh, quite a... Very f- good fortune that I, I was lucky enough to uh, have happen while I was there. And, and this is a quotation from the book that I've been reading. He said, I'd say that Nibbana is already there in everybody, and everybody knows it, but they just don't recognize it. Intuitively, we know that there's something better than this world, but we don't know what it is. So we search for it, and because we have an array of senses to work with, we tend to focus out in the direction of the senses, looking there for true happiness. But of course, that's searching in the wrong direction. But the conditioning is very strong to move out into the world of the senses, because they're very, um, they're, they're, we're so sensitive. <laughs> And there's a lot of information coming there. And we don't know anywhere else to look. We're not, we, we don't have the training to look in any other way. And, and sometimes we get disappointed and frustrated in this because what, what that 
that movement turning outward in that way, that leads us to turning to that which is incapable of ever serving as a source of lasting happiness. We ask it to be that, to be the source of it, to provide that for us. We look to that which is in, in a, an essential way unreliable, not bad or wrong, but not reliable, to free us. And it, you know, we, if we think about it, it's kind of a setup for suffering and disappointment. But then when we find ourselves struggling and suffering, we, we tend to blame the world and conditions and point here and there. It's, it's because of this, because of this. But the world isn't to blame. It's just doing its thing. It's just a natural, lawful unfolding of causes and conditions that arise moment to moment. We're just asking it to be something, to do something that it cannot do. to be the source of that which is, it is incapable of providing. And so we turn to worldly conditions and uh, transient, unreliable experiences in, in this hope that, that this will lead us to freedom, to peace, to something lasting, we could say, or to a kind of true happiness that Annie was pointing to last night. Again from Ajahn Panyavado. The ultimate goal, Nibbana, is beyond the world, beyond attachment. The nature of Nibbana is emptiness. When our consciousness is rooted in the world, however, we cannot become aware of emptiness. We have no means to know what it is. And so instead we hold tightly to perceptions of me and mind. And the world we live in becomes bound by artificial conditions and attached to a world of conditioned reality. So it's a question of where we're turning, where we're looking. Now we have to be careful here because it's the same world of conditioned reality is the pathway, is the means for realizing what we would call the unconditioned. We have to be careful that we're not creating some kind of uh, false and and uh, false kind of duality in this. The way out, you could say, is through. It's not separate from. It's not different than. It has to do with the way we're seeing things. It has to do with our vision. But most of us don't. Maybe none of us can start at the unconditioned. We we don't begin with the experience of emptiness usually. And practice requires this radical transformation in the way we look at the world, at conditioned reality, we could say. This flow of contact at the senses. It demands the practice, ultimately, that we let go of the attachment we have to our perceptions, our beliefs and ideas about who we are about the nature of reality. And if we approach it in the right way, then meditation becomes a process of training. It's a kind of training. Often this word is used. It's a training of the mind and the heart. 
And we're training this um, quality of mindful awareness. And he spoke at length about mindfulness, the function of it, how it works, what this process of being aware, being mindful, how that works, what that uh, potential of that is. And this simple capacity, something we all have. Notice the quality of awareness right now, just in this moment, the feeling of the body sitting, the sound of my voice. Right now, awareness is present or not. This natural, simple capacity that we all share, we all have this. We train in this, we train this relationship to experience, to bring mindful awareness to it. And through this process, this opens us to beginning to see the truth of the way things really are. Beneath our ideas about it, beneath our habits and patterns of reacting. Start to see the truth of things. And over time, we start to trust this quality of awareness more and more, perhaps more than the passing show of changing phenomena. We start to trust this quality of mindfulness. We see this is, is something that is trustworthy. That this is our best protection and our greatest friend. And we learn to recognize things as they are without the need to judge them, allowing us then to see how our inner world functions, see how habitual patterns of reactivity function in our lives. Start to let go of the need to take it personally because we see its causes and conditions in the moment. And we don't have to take it personally or claim ownership of it as somehow mine or me or who I am. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. The metaphor of the island that you cannot go beyond is so very powerful that because it points to the principle of an awareness that you can't get beyond. It's very simple very direct, and you can't conceive it. You have to just trust it. You have to trust this simple ability that we all have to be fully present and fully awake. The way of mindfulness is the way of recognizing conditions just as they are. We simply recognize and acknowledge their presence without blaming them or judging them or criticizing them or praising them. Allow them to be the positive and the negative both. And as we trust this way of mindfulness more and more, we begin to realize the reality of the island that you cannot go beyond. So this is, this is our practice then, meeting the flow of life just as it is. It doesn't have to be any particular way. As Annie was saying, mindfulness can, can take any object, anything that arises we can be aware of, and anything that arises is um, suitable, is workable, is, mm, has the potential to serve as a vehicle for 
understanding to arise. So we trust this ability to be aware, to be awake in the moment, bringing mindfulness to whatever's happening, being aware of conditions in the moment, recognizing them without judging, blaming either them or ourselves, without taking it all so personally. And at the same time, part of this training is is training our focus to what we might call the more universal or common or ultimate aspects of reality, of this flow of phenomena. So this begins perhaps in the simplest way in seeing that all things, no matter how they manifest, subtle or gross, coarse or fine, pleasant or unpleasant, likable or not, we see their impermanent nature. We start to see more and more deeply into this, that that which has the nature to arise has the nature to change and pass away, to cease. The essential nature of all things, that are, they are impermanent, they're not reliable in an essential way, they're coreless and beyond our direct control for the most part, uncontrollable. And seeing in this way inclines the mind, the heart, to letting go, to not grasping at any of it. There's one teaching where someone asked the Buddha if he could summarize his entire teaching in one short phrase. You know, and there's volumes and volumes of discourses, some of them quite lengthy. But the Buddha said, yeah, I can do that. Sabbe dhamma nalam abhinivesaya. Pali. Usually translated, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And the Buddha then said, said three very striking things. He said, um, whoever had heard this phrase, this teaching, had heard all of the teachings. Whoever had put it into practice had practiced all of the teachings and whoever had received the fruits of this practicing, of practicing this, had realized all possible fruits of the path. That's pretty powerful. And in a way, we could say that everything he taught, everything any one of us might say, is in service of this understanding. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. There's, there's really only one Dharma talk. It's just variations on the theme that supports or points to or inclines towards this understanding that the Buddha said, this is it. It's all in there. <laughs> you don't need any more. So you could say, pay attention and don't hold on. Just do that. So the key to this statement, I think, is are the words nothing whatsoever. You know, he didn't say, well, okay, don't cling to accept this or accept that. Nothing, whatever. It's not ambiguous. And we could substitute um, clung to with, we could say, identified with, 
held on to. But this, this basic understanding is very clear. Don't hold on to anything. Or we could phrase it in a different way. Let go of everything. Ajahn Chah, as he so often did, put this kind of understanding very simply in this very famous quotation. He said once, do everything with a mind that lets go. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. We've referred, uh, and we often will, to the teaching in the Satipatthana Sutta. This is the, the single most detailed set of meditation instructions that we find in the Pali Canon. And there's a refrain there, which is very uh, well known by many of you, I'm sure. It's repeated 13 times through this sutta. So there's some emphasis on this, this refrain. And it really uh, f- comes at the end of almost every section of the of instructions. For example, uh, the other morning when Joseph uh, introduced the phrase, uh, there is a body. Mindfulness is estab- mindfulness that there is a body is established to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. Well, following that is this line. And one abides independently, not clinging to anything in the world. That's the, that's the way that teaching and uh, the, same, the same line, mindfulness that there is a mind is established to the extent necessary for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. Mindfulness that there are feelings, meaning the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, we've mentioned. It, it's, it's there in so many ways. A very simple teaching, this simple kind of teaching. And I read this often, and I, I was always uh, inclined to see this as kind of a sort of a description of, of the end of things. <laughs> if you practice and if you do it right, then you get to abide independently, not clinging. You know, like, like this is the result. I held it in this way, the end of the path. But I've started really thinking of it in a different way more recently, to, to really see it as an instruction, as a, a something to practice, to put into practice. Everything else in this sutta is an instruction for practicing, so this too we can hold in this way. We can practice this independent abiding, not clinging to anything. It goes to the heart of this simple core teaching that the Buddha gave. So there are a couple of ways I'd mentioned this evening that we can start to touch into this. And one has to do with this relationship to seeing the impermanent nature of things. Letting the focus of our attention, go more to this aspect of our experience, which is always true. It's never not true. It's never not true that things are not changing. (laughs) Sometimes they're not changing quite fast enough. Sometimes they're changing way too fast for our taste. But they are always changing. This is always true. Whether we like them or don't like them, 
no matter how we feel about it, this applies. We can always say this about things. So we really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a situ, it's a case of where we choose to put our focus or attention, you could say. These bodies, minds, it's all in the state of constant flux and change. But most of the time we're caught in the details of the flow of the process. In this world of sense contact, sights, sounds, touch, thoughts, emotions, feelings, all of it. All we think and feel about the world and all that it seems to mean about me. And we fall into a kind of fascination with all of that. And we, we lose sight of the fact that, yes, all that is true and it is just a flow of changing phenomena. It's just that. And we wind up attributing a kind of a solidity or a reality to it that it doesn't actually have. And there seem to be a lot of issues in this. There seems to be a lot of stuff to consider, to deal with, and there's so much liking and disliking that arises in relation to it, wanting and not wanting it. And, you know, clearly there must be something that we have to do about it all. Feels like that. I've got, to, I've got to get into some kind of engagement with it. This is from a, a Thai teacher named Upasaka Ki Nanayon, a, a Thai laywoman lived in the last century from a book called Pure and Simple. If you look into the rippling current of your experience, you'll find that there's actually nothing you can latch onto as having any real essence. Everything disbands and disappears, and new fabrications arise and pass away, arise and pass away. They just keep on flowing, and they seem to involve many issues. But actually, there aren't many issues. There's really only arising, remaining, and passing away. It's because we're so focused on not seeing this that there seem to be so many issues. But no matter how many there are, there's really only just this, arising, remaining, passing away. It's like a rippling current of water where the rippling isn't a thing at all. Now this is not to deny the truth of our feelings or the contents and, and the the, the, you could say the, the truth of our inner world and experience, that is real, there's a reality to that. But we often get so caught up in the content of it and how we feel about it all that we don't notice the quality of change. We're not tuned to seeing that so much, at least some of the time. It's all anicca. But if we take a half step back, and relax into the flow of change, we may find that this leads us to this sense of of an independent abiding. That it's actually a possibility in moments because we can just relax into the flow of of phenomena in the moment as it arises and passes away and just let it go, let it be, let it do its thing. It's just nature. We let nature take its course. So Upasaka Ki continues, 
if you learn to see skillfully in this way, you'll see that all things arise, remain, and pass away. The past has passed away. The future hasn't yet come. Look simply at the present arising and passing away right before your eyes and don't hold on. When you see arising, remaining, and passing away, pure and simple, right in the present moment, and then let go, that's when you gain release. So another way that we might start to open into this sense of this independent abiding, abiding independently, not clinging to anything in the world, is through resting more and more in the quality of awareness itself, turning the attention to the aware mind. This past spring I was here on retreat here, sitting in this hall. I was fortunate enough to do uh, three retreats in a row and um, one of these was with a um, a teacher from Burma named Sayadaw Tejaniya. And he said, he made one simple statement. He would come into the hall in the morning and, and sit with us and just kind of, I don't know, every once in a while some reflection would come out. <laughs> it's quite, it's wonderful. But at one point he said, awareness is your true home. Just stay home where you belong. And there were moments for me, <laughs> not all the time, but there were times when it, it was, it's like I would, I would be, it was like, I'll just stay here. I, d- I don't have to pick any of this up. Just, just let it go by. I don't have to pick it up. I'll stay here. I see the mind leaning in that way, that movement. Of, of engaging with whatever. It's like, no, I'll just stay home. <laughs> I'll just stay here. I don't have to pick this up. We don't have to pick it up. Rebecca was pointing to that this morning. This points us towards this independence. It's not that we have to change what's happening. That's not, it's not that we just let it, it's just nature. We let nature do its thing. It's really good at it. And there are times when we might discover that, that there isn't anything that we're not holding on to it, clinging to it, identifying with it. It's just this flow arising and passing at the senses and we're not identifying with it, grasping at it, holding on to any of it defining ourselves in terms of it. When we do that, it's like trying to hold on to this moving river. And we can't hold on. It just slips through our fingers anyway. And we're turning to it when we try to hold on to it. We're, We're asking it to be something that it can't be and to provide something that it can't provide. But if we allow it to arise and cease and follow its nature and see that we are nature in that way and let ourselves arise and cease in the same way, 
then this realization of seeing the arising and the ceasing of things increases our faith and confidence in this non-attachment, this letting go, this independent abiding, in non-clinging to anything whatsoever. So again, a few more words from Ajahn Sumedho. As we keep reflecting on this, the tendency toward attachment falls away and the reality of non-attachment, of non-grasping, reveals itself in what we can say is Nibbana. If we look at it in this way, Nibbana is here and now, not an attainment in the future. The reality is here and now. It's just so very simple, but it's beyond description. And it can't be bestowed or even conveyed. It can only be known by each person for themselves. So I want to end this evening with... uh, a little story and and, uh, a teaching. This is a very famous uh, teaching from the Buddha to the ascetic Bahia. It's a short sutta called the Bahia Sutta. And and Bahia was a, um, he wound up, I think he was shipwrecked. He was living by the seashore and, uh, and for some reason, maybe because he had nothing else, he had fashioned himself uh, some robes and clothing made of bark. He was known as Bahia of the bark cloth. So he's wearing this, this bark-like uh, robe. And he was living, he, he, he was living uh, out in nature under, the, under a tree for the most part. And, and because of for whatever reason, maybe because of his bark robes, he, he got a lot of attention. He was receiving a lot of offerings from the people nearby. They, they were supporting him and, uh, and offering him lots of things. And, and he, he, was a, you know, he was a seeker. He was interested in trying to understand the deeper things in life. But he was maybe a, maybe a little deluded. And he, he began to think, he was getting all this attention. He thought, well, maybe I'm... I'm one of those who are enlightened. And it's said that a kindly um, uh, deity, a deva, who uh, in the story it said that this was someone who had been one of his relatives in a previous life, that they, they, they saw this going down and they came down and said, hey, Bahia, not only are you not enlightened, you're not doing anything that's going to get you there. You know, you're a little off track here. <laughs> And, and Bahia said, well, you know, okay, help me out. <laughs> what should I do? Because he was sincere. And uh, I'm paraphrasing the teaching. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the deva said, okay, there's this guy. He's up in the north, the Buddha. Gautama, the ascetic. He knows, he's, he's teaching the real deal. Go find him and, and he'll help you, get you going in the right direction. So it said that, that Bahia made a lot of effort and traveled a great distance and, and came to where I think at that time the Buddha was living in Savati, where he spent uh, many rains and periods and gave, he gave more discourses in this place, Savati, than any other uh, place. And he, he comes and he says, where's the Buddha? You know, and the monks say, yeah, he's, out, he's out on alms round. And Bahia seeks him out and follows him on alms round. He says, 
Venerable Sir, please, please teach me something. Give me some, some, some course, give me a teaching now. And the Buddha said, chill out, Bahi, I'm on alms rounds. It's not the right time. Bahi, a second time, please, we don't know what's going to happen. Lay it on me. And the Buddha says, Bahi, I'm on alms round. You have to wait. It's not the right time. Third time. If you've got a Buddha around, always go for the third time because they usually say, okay. They acquiesce if you ask them three times. It happens all over in the teachings. So the Buddha says, okay. I mean, this guy is not going to leave me alone. <laughs> he says, okay. And he says this. Then Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the scene, there will be only the scene. In reference to the herd, only the herd. In reference to the sensed, only the sensed. In reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. When, Bahia, for you, there is only the scene in reference to the scene, only the herd in reference to the herd, only the sensed in reference to the sensed, only the cognized in reference to the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in terms of that. When there is no you in terms of that, there is no you there. When there is no you there, you are neither here nor there nor anywhere in between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. And it's said that Bahia was, was ripe to hear this teaching and that as the result of hearing it, he became fully enlightened in that moment. And he had pleaded with the Buddha to, um, he said, we don't know what's coming. It's said in the story that shortly after this, he was, uh, he, he left, he said, thanks, left, and was, was trampled and killed, gored and trampled by a, a mad cow, a mother cow who uh, was, thought she was protecting her calf or had gone somewhat mad and, and was killed, right? Just shortly after this experience. And it's said that the monks um, went to the Buddha and they, they said, well, what happened to Bahia? What, what is his destiny? What, what future birth will he take? And the Buddha said, Bahia was wise. He attained final Nibbana. There will be no coming to birth, no further coming to birth for Bahia. And it's said that the Buddha then uttered this verse, which will be the last thing I offer this evening. Where water, earth, fire, and wind no footing find, there burns not any light, nor shines the sun. The moon sheds not her radiant beams, but the home of darkness is not there. When in deep silent hours the holy sage to truth attains, then free from joy and pain, from form and formless worlds is released. So let's continue to sit quietly for a moment or two and uh, just let these words drift off. There's nothing there to hold on to. And we'll let the silence, which is definitely more eloquent than me, speak to us for a moment or two. <laughs> 